Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and this is episode two of season two, our sophomore year. Uh, Today, our guest is Richard Eisenberg, who is, uh, among other things, an expert on helping people find purpose in their lives. I can think of nothing more important for our audience than that. Uh, Richard is the editor of the Money and Work and Purpose channels on Next Avenue uh, and a managing editor there. We're going to talk a lot about not only personal finance and job changes and field changes and volunteering, uh, but also just in general, how to find purpose in your life before you retire and then afterwards. So Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. How are you? I couldn't be better. I'm so glad to have you here this morning. Um, can you share a little bit about, just as we get started, a little bit about your, your history and, and your journey to, to where you are today and how you got involved in this in your life? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so I've been a personal finance and career writer and editor all my career. I started at Money Magazine. I was there for almost 20 years uh, doing all kinds of things, writer, editor, Washington correspondent, and uh, ultimately executive editor. Um, after that, I was at Good Housekeeping for 10 years as the money editor there, and then I was at Yahoo as the front page finance editor, uh, and then I was part of the launch team of Next Avenue, which is the uh, public media website for people 50 and older to try to help them navigate their lives. It's nextavenue.org, O-R-G, and uh, I've been there since we started in 2012. Oh, that's fantastic. So there's there's a, a an enormous amount of pressure on folks as they get older, uh, lots of different kinds of pressure, but one of them uh, is definitely to find meaning. And sometimes that one gets lost in the shuffle of trying to launch your kids or take care of your parents or figure out um, you, you know, how to wind down a certain career or, or even take on a, another career after a midlife crisis. Where do you start? Well, it is something that we hear a lot about from our uh, readers of Next Avenue. Our audience is people in their 50s and 60s, and I've, I think there are a lot of people in that age group who are starting to say to themselves, well, you know, where can I find more meaning in my life and purpose? And that may be through work. It may be through the job you have. It may be by switching fields or switching jobs. It might be through volunteering. There's lots of ways to do it. And I think it's something that something that people in their 50s and 60s are really looking for and, and want to find it. And, and once they do find it, it makes them much happier day to day. So one of the one of the tenets of our show and and why we have built a listener base is because folks are recognizing the message that retirement in the traditional sense is just simply not good for you. It's not good to disappear, retreat and and sort of fall off the radar. Uh, mm-hmm. And the example I use is, you know, with social media today, you look at a, a LinkedIn profile, for example, and if LinkedIn just says retired, it, it's almost as if it said deceased. I mean, that, that really and I don't mean to be cavalier, but there has to be some kind of connection to the world, don't you think? Um, I do think so. And one of the things that I've been finding interesting on LinkedIn profiles is increasingly you see people are putting in the volunteering work that they're doing or that they have done, boards that they've been on, things like that. You know, I think when LinkedIn started, people thought, okay, well, this is just my resume, so I'm going to say where I've worked and what I do. And now people realize uh, that's not all it, it is. And, and rather, whether it's LinkedIn or not, I think people are saying, hey, there's more to me than just my job. We, we have a tendency, and I'm overgeneralizing, but we have a tendency as Americans when we're asked who we are to immediately answer with what we do. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if that's a cultural oddity in this country or if it's worldwide, but I, you know, if, if people ask me, who, who are you? 
one of the first things that comes to mind should be, I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a, I'm a, a business owner, I'm, I'm a volunteer, I'm X, Y, and Z, I'm a graduate of. But what tends to come off our lips first is what we do for a living. We identify so closely with what we do for a living that people would say, I'm a podiatrist, I'm a carpenter. Do you mm-hmm. find that in your, in your work with folks? Oh, absolutely. We're very much wrapped up in our work identities. I think that's partly an American trait, but I think it's also partly true to a lesser extent in other places. Uh, and part of that is just that it's, you know, we've been doing this, um, particularly if you're in your 50s or 60s, we've been doing this for many years. And so that's who we've come to think of ourselves as. That's how other people think of us as. Uh, I, I interviewed uh, for Next Avenue a few months ago. Uh, the author of a really interesting book called Retirement and Its Discontents. And she's a professor at the University of Toronto. And she was interviewing people who were in retirement, but not really happy about it. And it had nothing to do with finances. It was just about the life that they were living. And for many of them, and these were everybody from former CEOs to former doctors to former professors to former homemakers, they all, they all said basically that they had been so wrapped up with their work identity that for them it was really jarring when they didn't have that anymore to think about, well, who are they and how will people recognize who they are and, and will they still get the respect that they used to get? So it's a big problem. Well, and, and culturally, I think throughout time, um, elders in various communities have been the most respected, most revered and, and deemed to be the most wise. Uh, and today, with this this idea of a either government imposed or employer imposed or sort of self imposed retirement age, it's almost like being put out to pasture instead of being in a in a place of reverence. And I don't understand how that happened, and I I definitely don't know how to how to flip that script before it's my turn. Well, I think it's changing. Um, I think what's happening now is increasingly individuals are saying to themselves. Um, okay, maybe I'm not going to continue to work five days a week, um, eight, nine, ten hour days, but I still want to do something with my life. And that may be working part time. It may be volunteering. So, you know, yeah, maybe you can call it retirement, but it's not what people used to think of as retirement. So I'm glad to see that that's happening. And I think it's going to take time to get the whole society to come around to that. But I think it will happen. So, so in that case, can we say that the, the boomers' impact on, uh, on our country is liable to be a, a redefining or a, a, a reevaluation of retirement in general? Is that one of the takeaways from the generation? I think that's true. I think it's also happening with the next generation right behind them, the Gen Xers, because some of them are now in their 50s and they're starting to think about that, that as well. And then, of course, we'll see what happens with millennials after that. But I think, yeah, absolutely. Boomers are in many ways redefining retirement just the way they redefined so many other things as they were growing up. Yeah. I, and, and for boomers to redefine retirement, I, I'm of the, the mindset that millennials are redefining work. And it, it, what I mean by that is these are folks who in their 20s and 30s are more likely to take a sabbatical or change fields uh, or, or, or make major adjustments or pivots in their lives at a younger age than their parents or grandparents would have dared. Are, are you seeing any of that in, in some of the work you're doing? You know, that's absolutely true. A lot of our readers are parents of millennials, and so we hear from them about this. I have two millennial sons, and so I'm living it myself. Um, you know, what worries me a little bit about the millennial generation is I, I, I fear that they may encounter a retirement crisis of their own, a financial retirement crisis, because so many of them are 
independent contractors, self-employed, you know, working on their own and enjoying that work, but they don't have a 401k because they don't work at an employer that offers one. Uh, they don't have an employer. They are their own employer. And, and I worry that they are not going to be putting enough money aside on their own because nobody is making it easy for them to do that. They could be putting money into IRAs. But uh, let's face it, most people don't think about putting money into an IRA, whether they're uh, an employee uh, or an, or self-employed. I think that's true. It's also good job security for, for me because one of the things we do is, is help folks realize the, the various places where they should be putting money, whether it's a, a health savings account, whether it's IRAs, whether it's uh, if you're self-employed, it's forming a SEP for yourself and, and putting away real money and getting some tax benefits. In some ways, the tax benefits of self-employment are better than or can be better than the tax benefits of being an employee. And there's certainly more flexibility, but you have to do some planning. You have to have some advisors and some resources. And, um, and some of that comes down to the lessons none of us learned growing up. You know, we, we, we volunteer for junior achievement and do a lot of work with financial literacy. And there's nothing taught in schools. You can graduate from an Ivy League college and still have no idea how to balance a checkbook. That's true. I would like to see more uh, personal finance education in high schools and in colleges. So uh, I've been part of a, a group called the Maryland Coalition for Financial Literacy and have so much as testified before the state Senate on financial literacy education in schools. And everywhere we turn, we're, we're hitting roadblocks, not because anyone thinks it's a bad idea, but because of the, the way to get there means you're legislating curriculum. And there's this idea that if we can legislate curriculum, the fact that we all think personal finance is a good idea, who knows what the next legislature might decide to legislate into curriculum that maybe not everyone agrees on. And so th there's that piece. There's also the piece of the teachers' unions. There's the piece where we have tied so much of scholastic achievement to standardized tests instead of actual learning. Um, and then throw into that mix the fact teachers would be asked to learn something else that they don't know themselves so they could teach it. And what you have is a cauldron of challenges rather than what everyone agrees is a good idea. I haven't met anyone who said, no, we should not teach personal, uh, personal financial literacy. Everyone's on their own. They'll be fine. I haven't heard anybody say that. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be an issue of uh, requiring and, and regulating and forcing schools to offer the classes. But I would like to see more schools saying, you know, this is something that would be really beneficial for our students, so we're going to choose to do it. My concern there is is how the financial literacy course is taught and who's teaching it, because I've seen cases where sometimes it's taught by somebody who works for a financial services company, and I, I'm a little suspect about whether that advice is going to be objective and whether they may be in some ways tilting the uh, information and advice that they offer towards you know, why it's so good to have a credit card or that sort of thing. So uh, I'm in favor of personal finance literacy. I just want to be sure that it's taught properly. Uh, I, I think you nailed it on the head. And there, there are uh, some very obvious potential conflicts of interest if there are employees of organizations or organizations themselves involved in that. There are also some subtle conflicts of interest just based on background. And you could say that about teaching any program. I'm sure someone teach a professor of history has their own biases too. But on the financial side, bad advice is often worse than no advice at all. And so th that's sort of a scary thing. So let's, let's pivot now to how your audience, the audience of Next Avenue, the 50s and 60s, um, how these people are uh, attracting, receiving, digesting, and implementing financial advice. 
because there's a, a, a trend where millennials tend to be do-it-yourselfers to a great degree. Mm-hmm. Boomers, a little, uh, uh, they want to do it themselves, but a lot of them don't have that background. And so I think a lot of them are saying, boy, I wish I had started this 10 years ago. At least they arrive on at, at our office and say, oh, if I wish we had met you 10 years ago. Where are your readers getting their information, their knowledge, their advice? What is What are you finding in terms of your readership? Well, some of them do have financial advisors, but uh, I think our audience is, is typical of the general public, which is to say most people don't have financial advisors. So I think mostly what they're doing is if they don't have advisors, they are getting advice from their friends and their family, from the media, places like Next Avenue, um, and uh, wherever they can pick it up, sometimes maybe books and other websites. And, you know, I, I think a lot of the advice they're getting is good and helpful, but not all of it is. And sometimes there's a bias that's built in that they may not even be aware of themselves. Um, you know, I do feel like in some ways the 401k has been helpful in that um, it, it, it keeps it, it um, protects people from making mistakes by not being diversified enough because the 401k options tend to be very diversified and people tend to be, you know, they often will go with a target date fund and so they don't really have to think much about which particular fund to be buying and when to buy and sell, that sort of thing. So I feel that that's helpful. Uh, I would like to see more people seeing financial advisors, but I'd also like to see more financial advisors helping middle-class Americans who typically are not... um, offered the possibility of working with financial advisors because they don't have enough assets. So I'd like to see that change. I, I, I love that. And actually, um, I, I want to unpack that a little bit because um, we've got a, I know we've got a show coming up later this season where we're, we're working with some financial advisors and consultants and coaches who specifically do work with a, a lot of middle income or even lower income folks, or even folks who just want a project basis. Um, there are companies out there and organizations out there who, who specialize in either hourly work or flat fee work or other things where it's a little more affordable. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the advent of the robo-advisor, where right. now you, you may not get the same level of attention, but at least the advice that you receive isn't, uh, allegedly, isn't one-size-fits-all. Because the, the yeah, media I, piece, it's, it's one-size-fits-all. Well, I like the idea of robo-advisors for some people from for investing. My concern about the robo-advisors is that they only look at that piece of your financial life, and they don't ask about or know anything about anything else, like... Are you helping to support your aging parents? Do you have kids going to college? Do you have the right insurance policies? So I feel like they're allowing you to make investment choices in kind of a vacuum. I would like to see more holistic financial planning and and whether that's through robo-advisors or through uh, human advisors. You know, we're starting to see some financial planners doing holistic retirement planning where it's more than just how much money are you saving and are you going to be set financially, but what do you want to do with your life uh, as you get older? And uh, I'm I'm glad to see that's happening. It's starting to happen. There's the Retirement Coaches Association, and that's that's a a new uh, and fledgling group, but I'm impressed by the work they're doing. So I'm hoping that over time we're going to be getting people to have good advice from experts not only about their money, but also about their lives. Uh, I, I think you're right. I do think that's, as Wayne Gretzky might have said, that's where the puck is going. So uh, I, I think advisors who don't embrace that are going to be left in, in the cold because I do think consumers, families, business owners, they want more than just a quantitative analysis. In fact, 
I, you know, I'd argue that our job is 80% qualitative and maybe 20% quantitative, which is ironic that I used a, a calculator to do that, mm -hmm. right? But, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we've spoken to folks who, um, you know, I'm, I'm part of the organization called Females in Finance. I'm what's called a uh, male ally network member. And mm -hmm. one of the things that Females in Finance brings to this table is this idea that the financial advisory space has to be relational far mm -hmm. before and far more than it's ever transactional. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I happen to think that, um, that the, the advent of groups like that and the influx of women, professional women into the advisory space is going to be good for the, for the profession because mm -hmm. the, the old school 1980s stockbrokers are mercifully almost gone. Mm -hmm. And and now we now we do have folks who can help plan your life and recognize that you know a portfolio of X dollars is different for two different people because one of them has four kids and one doesn't have any or one has a special needs issue or a parents issue or a health issue or or three ex spouses or any of the things that that make people unique and and create their lives that are not a math problem. Right. Uh, well, one of our writers on Next Avenue, Carrie Hannon, who writes a lot about personal finances and work after 50, um, has written some really interesting articles about what women are looking for in financial advice. And what, what she found by talking to experts is often women say that when even if they go to an, a meeting with their husband or partner um, with a financial advisor, often the advisor is talking just to the man and not to the woman who's sitting right there. Uh, and sometimes the woman isn't even invited to the meeting at all. So that has to change. I know it's starting to, but I think there's more that has to be done. I think there we need to see more women financial advisors as well. And I think the financial planning field needs to be much more diverse than it is. The numbers are really awful when you look at the percentage of planners who are not white. Uh, it's, you know, paltry. I think the last number I saw was something like 5%. Yeah, there, there are definitely some, some communities that are either uh, underserved uh, and populations that are underserved or are being served by folks that don't necessarily identify in the same kinds of ways. So I, I can certainly appreciate that. Um, you know, one of the things that I recognized early in my career, and, and you know, I've been at this 20, almost 26 years, um, was that in almost three out of four cases, no matter what the husband in a relationship says, the wife is in charge. And ultimately, mm -hmm. if the two of them are sitting in front of you and you're paying attention to the husband and the wife doesn't like you, you're not working with these people. And, you know, let's also remember just from a, a, a it's not even altruistic, from a selfish perspective, if you're looking to, to grow a company, women um, as clients, they tend, to be, um, they tend to be more consistent. They tend to be uh, longer relationships. They tend to be less transactional and much more relational. Um, and they also outlive their husbands, which means, mm -hmm. you know, if, if you've been ignoring half of that, uh, of that family unit, of that couple, and the, the half you've been ignoring is the one that is uh, left standing, you no longer have a client relationship anyway. You're right. Absolutely. So for, for financial advisors, and, and you know, I do a, a lot of consulting for financial advisors, and one of the things that, that I tell our folks is we have eight advisors here is that not only are the women usually the decision makers, they're also the ones that you have to make sure are comfortable or in almost every case, you will not work with this family because um, if, if, uh, if the wife in a relationship or one spouse, at least in the relationship who's the more relational, isn't comfortable, it's just not gonna happen. Yeah, and you, beware, beware, I beware the husband, any client or prospective client who shows up and doesn't have their spouse with them 
is a warning sign. It's a warning sign that there's no communication or something's being hidden or there's something wrong. And I get disinterest. My own wife doesn't like to come to our meetings and we have a financial advisor because I'd sooner do my own financial advising or my own taxes like I'd give myself my own root canal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's good to have objective advice. So, you know, and she, she sort of comes kicking and screaming at, and at the same time also wants to know what's going to happen if, if I kiss the bus. Right. So, so making sure that she knows who to call and that there's a comfort level, even if one spouse, and it's not always uh, the woman. In fact, a lot of times it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, if one spouse is truly disinterested and, and sort of hates this stuff or doesn't want to talk about it, that's not necessarily a problem so long as they have a comfort level with the person they're going to have to or the people they're going to have to go to when there's a, an event, a tragedy, a, you know, some major thing that happens, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the the key for couples is that they both need to be at least present to hear the information, the advice, to have the option of asking questions if they want to, to be able to say what's on their mind if they have something they want to say. Um, you know, it's just respect. So, so I, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot because I know you were you were working with Money Magazine, but Money Magazine has gone away. I, I, you know, Kiplinger's has replaced it on, on our shelf. And yeah. uh, is, that, is that a sign of the times for print or was that something specific to them or can you not say? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with what's been happening in print. You know, a lot of magazines, sadly, are closing or or publishing less frequently or having much smaller audiences than before. There still is a money.com, a money magazine website. Um, And, you know, it's also the world has changed. So, you know, back in the 80s when I was at Money Magazine in the uh, 1990s and before the Internet, you know, that was where you would go to you, to get your information about personal finances often. And a, a monthly magazine was okay. Well, these days with the Internet, people are looking for, you know, instant information and they want to be able to find it whenever they're interested in looking for it and they want to be timely. Uh, and so I can understand why the, the market for monthly information about personal finances is of less interest to people than something that is something they could get, you know, anytime that they want. So, so you've got a, a readership of 50 to 60 year olds, uh, admittedly, a good number of them don't work with financial advisors, possibly because they either don't feel they have the assets to do that or possibly because they've been turned away by someone who says, sorry, you don't have enough money for us, um, which you know, arguably is not a pleasant experience and could turn anyone off. Uh, how do you encourage them to vet advisors or to uh, seek uh, advice from a financial advisor do you write on, uh, on on topics about interviewing potential advisors or finding advice that's objective or fiduciary or, or what have you? Yes, we've written quite a few stories on Next Avenue about how to find a financial advisor, the questions to ask, uh, uh, you know, how to be sure that they have your best interest in mind, that sort of thing. There are a lot of articles on Next Avenue about that. You know, people will often start by going to somebody that their friend or family member uses, and that may be a good place to start. But keep in mind that you, that your friend or family member's needs and interests may be very different than yours. So the advisor that they have might not be the right person for you. It might be, but not necessarily. So uh, we often tell our readers to, if they're going to be looking for an advisor, to be interviewing at least three um, and then, you know, see how comfortable they are with them in 
you know, is the advisor listening to them and responsive? And does that advisor have clients that are like you in, in the kind of income and assets you have and your financial goals? You want somebody who's got a lot of experience you know, working with people who are like yourself. So we're, we're at the, the phase of our show where I get to put you on the spot one last time, and that is to request an extra credit assignment from you. Um, and, you know, I'd actually like two, if you don't mind. One in general, but one in following up on what we just discussed, which was interviewing potential financial advisors. So before we get to the, the big question, um, sort of as a sub-question, what, what is the, if you only had one question to ask three potential financial advisors, what would it be? How will you make our financial lives better? And, and I want to get uh, specific answers, and I'm not saying I want to hear that they're going to say, I'm going to make you earn 12% on your money next year. I want to hear them actually give me their philosophy on financial planning and and the way that they go about doing it, and then see whether that jives with mine. Terrific. That's a great one question. And of course, you probably list 20 in your articles. Um so what would, the, what would the extra credit assignment be? Our listeners like to walk away from this every two weeks with one actionable uh, that, that they can do to, to begin um, making progress for, for financial independence, for graduating into retirement, um, and in this case, for finding some purpose. So what would that extra credit assignment be? I guess I would say to you know, spend a little time to think yourself and maybe if you have a, a spouse or partner to talk with that person about what would really make you happier in life, putting money aside where you would feel you're actually getting more meaning and purpose in your life. And that might be volunteering. It might be uh, changing jobs, starting your own business, um, uh, doing the work that you're doing differently. And, you know, and, and, and sometimes it helps to just talk it out with somebody that you uh, who knows you really well, who says, you know, I, I know that what really gets you charged up is this, or, you know, you used to love to do this when you were younger. What about going back to that? And I think sometimes we're a little afraid to start asking ourselves that question. And and the more we can do it and maybe get a little help from our friends and family, I think the happier we're going to be. Excellent, excellent advice. How can folks find you? We'll certainly put some show notes together, but uh, if, if folks want to read what you've written or, or get to know you a little bit about or, or contact you, how can they reach you? Uh, well, you can go to nextavenue.org, uh, O-R-G. Um, you can email me at reisenberg, that's R-E-I-S-E-N-B-E-R-G, at nextavenue.org. Uh, if you search on our site to see by my name, you'll see the articles I've written. Um, I typically write a blog for the website once or twice a week, and then I'm editing other people's articles every other day of the week. We have a lot of stories in the Money and Policy channel and the Work and Purpose channel to help people in their 50s and 60s uh, with these kinds of issues. Richard, you've been a great guest. Thank you so much for joining us on Don't Retire, Graduate. Um, and to all our listeners out there, uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another terrific guest. For more information, go to www.don'tretiregraduate.com. And for more about BFG, check us out at www.bfgfa.com. This is Eric Brotman reminding you, don't retire, graduate. From this day forward, let us begin visualizing our dreams and building our futures. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. 
visit our website at don'tretiregraduate.com to subscribe. And please like us and post comments on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.